Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Well, today we're wrapping up a series that we have been uh, going through in this early part of the summer, um, calling it Renewal. And it's all about uh, finding rest and renewal, and particularly how we find that in times of worship. That worship gives us a greater perspective. It kind of brings things back into focus. And we've been looking through some of the Psalms, um, certainly not all of them because there's a lot there to look at. Um, but all of the Psalms are expressions. They are, they are praises. They are prayers back to God. And, and someone once said, most of Scripture speaks to us, but the Psalms have a way of speaking for us. And, and that's really, really true. You can read through the book of Psalms and you can find just wherever you are at in your life right now, something there for you. Something that's an expression of exactly what's on your heart. Um, Because worship does that. Worship, it gives us perspective. It helps us see things from God's point of view. And it helps us us deal with the things that stress us, that worry us, that frustrate us, that leave us with those feelings of restlessness. And we've looked at a couple of those. That hurried pace of life where we just need to slow down and realize the Lord is our shepherd. We don't need anything else. Prayed uh, one of the Psalms talking about how we need to realign our priorities. That, that God is need to be kept at number one in our life. And when we keep that perspective, everything else sorts itself out. Um, last week we talked about this whole idea of trying to control the things that are beyond our control and the frustration that comes with that. And there's a point at which you just have to say, I give up. God, this is beyond me. And learn to let go. See, Psalms speak to all of those circumstances in our life. And this morning, what I want to do is, as we wrap this up, is I want to talk about one other area of stress um, that I think every one of us deal with. And uh, I think whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, whether you are a Christ follower or not, um, whether you're a religious person or not, every one of us deals with this thing called guilt. And it has a twin cousin named shame. (laughs) And I think every one of us carry with us from time to time these feelings of guilt and shame. And and there's all kinds of physical effects to that. We found that, uh, research has found that um, our feelings of guilt can contribute to uh, physical things such as insomnia and um, memory loss. Guilt can be a factor in some eating disorders. Um, It contributes to hypertension to heart disease, to diabetes, to anxiety and depression. And there's been actually some recent studies that seem to indicate that that our feelings of guilt actually affect our immune system. That when we carry this, this load of guilt, when we carry shame, it affects us in every way, spiritually, emotionally, physically, all the way down the line. I was, um, back in 1988, there was a company down in Los Angeles. I don't think they still have it now. But they, they, um, they opened up what they called an apology hotline. And it was a, you could make an anonymous phone call and just apologize for whatever it is that you had done wrong. You know, kind of just a confession without having to say it to anybody, okay? They opened up that apology hotline. They were getting over 200 calls a day. That's the level of guilt, that many of us carry with us. What do you do with it? How do you handle guilt? How do you handle the shame that you carry? Well, there's a psalm David wrote about that. Psalm 51. This is his expression in his time of guilt. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. 
According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. So cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David came through a time of great guilt in his life. And this expression, his prayer to God, it just provides a great, great pattern uh, for this process of restoration. What, what to do with your guilt, what to do with the shame that you might be carrying. And like I said, it doesn't matter whether you're a religious person or not. Everybody carries guilt. And there's only one way to get rid of it. Now, as we go through this morning, don't think of this as a formula or, or a pattern or the, the four easy steps to restoration or, or a checklist that you got to go through to make sure you do it right, okay? That's not what this bread. What it is giving us is, is kind of a, a pattern, a pathway, if you will, back to restoration. But there are some really key points that come about in the psalm. The first one is you got to begin all of this with grace. It all begins with grace because grace is our only hope. Now, this psalm, like a few of them, not all of them have this, but this psalm particularly has, has a superscription. It tells the, um, the occasion of the writing of the psalm. What really happened? Why David wrote this psalm? And so that superscription, it's not actually in the psalm, but it's just before it in your Bibles, says that it's a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had con- committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, that's a long story. You can find it in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Here's the Cliff Notes version. David was king of Israel. He had an adulterous affair with a woman named Bathsheba. She became pregnant while her husband was away on the battlefield. Um, he, David tried to cover it up by having his, the, her husband come back and have some R&R with his wife, but he felt guilty being home with his wife when all of his companions were out on the battlefield, so he said, I can't do that. So David said, well, why don't you stay a second night and see if it works better for you? And that didn't work out either. So he sent them back, and David sent the courier behind him telling the general to say, move forward in the battle, and when you're in the pitch of the battle, put him right up front, put Uriah right up front, and then when things get really, really tough, pull back. And what amounted to murder. And Uriah was killed, and David was free to marry Bathsheba, and he thought everything was cool. Until, almost a year later, a prophet of God named Nathan comes to him. And he tells him this story about a rich man who had flocks and flocks, hundreds of sheep, and then a very poor man who had but one little ewe lamb. In fact, he describes the story, this little ewe lamb wasn't, even, wasn't really even the beginnings of a herd, it was more like a family pet. Like, you know, he had him eat with him when he ate kind of a thing. But when this rich man had a visitor, a traveler come from out of town that he was entertaining, rather than killing one of his own sheep to provide the meal for him, he actually stole the sheep from the poor man, 
had it slaughtered and made that the meal for the traveling visitor. And when David the king heard this story, he said, how in such a thing, how can that possibly happen in this nation? That is a horrible thing. How could somebody be so low? Who could do such a thing? This person needs to be put to trial and put to death. And Nathan looked at him and he said, you're the man. (laughs) In essence, that's what you have done. And it's at that moment, after a year of trying to cover it up, David realizes he is caught and he is guilty. And now he's got a choice. What is he going to do with his guilt? Now, your guilt may not seem like such a big deal compared to that, but you're just as guilty. And the answer for you is the same as the answer for David. Grace. For a year, he has squelched his conscience. For a year, he has tried to silence that inner voice that every time it comes up and he starts thinking about it and what he has done, he kind of pushes it off the side and tries not to think about it, but he can't. He can't because he's guilty and he's carrying the guilt. And the only thing he can do with his guilt is run to grace. And so he begins this psalm, this psalm of penance, if you will. But he begins it not not just saying about, oh God, please forgive me. What he starts with is he starts with the character of God. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. What is he doing? He's not buttering up God, okay? What he's doing is he's realizing he can't do anything about what he has done now. All he can do is trust in the character of God. And the character of God is loving and compassionate and gracious. And that's what he's counting on. He is counting on the grace of God. Notice what he doesn't do, by the way. Because he was a great king. In fact, he was probably one of the best kings Israel ever had. Probably the greatest king that Israel ever had. And, And he did a lot of cool things even before he became king. But he doesn't, he doesn't count on any one of those. He doesn't try to plead his case. He doesn't say, well, yeah, God, I know I messed up, but, but remember now, you called me to be king. Remember way, way back when the prophet Samuel came by and all of my brothers and, he, and, you, and you called him out and he said, no, no, David's the one that's going to be king. You anoint him to be king. Remember that, God? Remember, you're the one who chose me. And, and remember Goliath? Remember when Goliath stood in the hall of the army of Israel? Nobody would fight him and I went out there with just a little sling and I killed Goliath. Remember what I did, God? Remember how good I was at that? And remember, remember when King Saul was after me and he was chasing me for my life because he found out that I was going to be the next king and he didn't want to lose his kingdom, so he chased me with his armies? And remember, I had to hide out in the wilderness and in caves, and not once, but twice I had the chance to kill him, but I didn't? I did a really good thing then, God. And what about all these songs? I mean, all these wonderful praise songs. You, I mean, doesn't that make up for something? You can't go back to that. Because there's nothing he can do to undo what he's done. There's no excuse. There is no amount of doing good to make up for. See, grace by its nature is a gift. And grace comes from the very character of God. In fact, Lewis Smedes puts it this way. Grace is really shorthand for God. Grace stands for gift. It is the gift of being accepted before we became acceptable. Grace overcomes shame by simply accepting us, the whole of us, with no regard to our beauty or our ugliness, our virtue or our vices. We are accepted wholesale with no possibility of being rejected, accepted once and accepted forever. That is the nature of our God. 
gracious God. And grace has nothing to do with deserving it. See, nobody deserves grace. See, we talk about being deserving or, or being worthy of grace. We're not deserving of grace, but we are worthy of grace. Deserving has to do with there's something that I did to get this. Worth has to do with the God who sees me as someone of great value with all of my failures and flaws. Everything, everything within me in those moments of my guilt say run and hide. Scripture says no, you run to grace. You run to God. And in that, in the assurance of His grace, now I've got the freedom to come clean. Now I can go back and admit my guilt. And that's what I've got to do. I've got to own up to my guilt. You've got to own up to your guilt. The only way you're going to get freed of this guilt, the only way to be restored from this guilt is you've got to own up to it. You've got to take ownership of it. And there's a word that we don't like to use. It's not very, very popular in 21st century America. Nobody likes this word, but the word is sin. <laughs> the S word. See, we don't use that word. The word that we use is mistakes. I made a mistake. I used poor judgment. There was a lapse in my morality. <laughs> there are all kinds of ways. And all they're, they're all attempts to minimize the seriousness of what we are doing. Politicians. Have you ever heard a politician actually admit they did wrong and apologize? No. The, apo- the, the apologies go like this. Mistakes were made. By who? Doesn't matter. Mistakes were made. Well, yeah, but weren't you? Doesn't matter. Mistakes were made. You know, or they say things like this. If anybody was hurt, if anybody was offended by anything that I said or did, for that I apologize. Like it's their fault for being hurt or offended. <laughs> it's all our attempts to minimize what's going on. But there is no restoration without true ownership. And ownership means I am guilty and I have regret and remorse for what I have done. And that's what David does. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Imagine for a year now, he has been stuffing this, just pushing it down, trying not to think about it, trying to to convince himself it wasn't that bad. And now in the grace of God, there's almost this lightness of being able to come clean. And it's not just what I've done. In fact, our behaviors and our actions are actually a symptom of something much, much deeper. That's what he goes on and says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You see, here's the deal. It's not just that we sin, which is a bad enough thing, but the fact of the matter is we are sinners. Not because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It goes to the very heart of our human nature, the core of our being. Now, here's what I know about you, because I know it's true about me. Most of us in this room, we generally kind of think of ourselves as, we are good people who occasionally do bad things. But at heart, we are really good people. We all want to believe that about us. We are good people. We just sometimes, on occasion, do bad things. And that simply isn't true. What Scripture says is, no, no, no. You're not a good person who occasionally does bad things. You're a bad person who occasionally does good things. (laughs) And here's how you can know this is true. Because if I am inherently good, if you are inherently good, 
If really that's all it is, then you just, you know, then just stop doing bad. Because if you're inherently good, then just be consistently good. For goodness sake, be good. Yeah. I mean, that would solve, all, you, would, you would minimize all of the counseling that goes on in this world. Because all you'd have to do is, you'd have to go to your counselor, tell them what you've done, and they will say, well, then just stop. That's it, just stop. And you could pay your $95 and move on with your life and be good again, you know? But it's not that simple. Because the problem goes deeper than just our behavior. We are natural born sinners. There is something deep within us at the core of our nature. You are and I am. We are all sinners. Not because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And what's really, really hard to own up to, and the thing about our guilt and our shame is that we have to admit that I really am the type of person that would do such a thing. That I really am the type of person who would cheat on a test. That I really am the type of person that loses my temper and flies off the handle in my anger. I really am the type of person who will talk behind somebody's back about them. See, it's not just what I do. It's at the core of who I am. And I gotta own up to that. And that's tough. And that's really uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable to own up, to come clean. But when I do, then, then I can ask God for his forgiveness. Because I've come to him and I know that he accepts me with all of my faults, with all of my flaws, with all of my sin. And I can own up to him in the, in the, in the atmosphere of that grace and say, this is who I am. This is what I've done. Would you please forgive me? David says, wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Lord, make me clean. I need your forgiveness. Now, there's a couple of things forgiveness is not that we sometimes confuse with forgiveness. Forgiveness is not excusing. When you come to God, he doesn't say, well, it's not your fault. You didn't know any better. You know, you can't help yourself. I understand. And make excuses for it. That's not forgiveness. Nor is forgiveness tolerating. It's like, well, you did your best, and I guess I can't expect anything more than that, so okay. That's not what he does. Nor is forgiveness demanding penance. I grew up, uh, the neighborhood I grew up in was a very, very strong Italian Catholic neighborhood. Every one of my friends, I mean, I grew up with Jimmy Delfino, um, Jeff, Jeff Minnie, and then there were the Cano brothers and Jim Langamorsino. You know, that, that was the, those were the friends I grew up with. And everyone, everyone on my block went to the same Catholic church. I was the only Protestant on my block. And, and it was kind of confusing for me because I was a Christian and I, I thought they were Christians, but they would do this thing called confession that I never really understood. Because they would go to, go to church, go to Mass, and, and they would say, well, I had to do confession. I go, confession? What's confession? I'd never done anything. Like, what, what is that? He said, well, you go to the priest, you sit in this little cubicle, you tell him what you did wrong, and then, and then he has you do penance. Penance, what's penance? Well, penance is you have to go and say certain prayers so many times, or you, or you have to go and do something over here to make up for the wrong that you did. Said, oh. So it was kind of like community service, you know? You do something wrong, you call before the judge, he's going to let you off, you don't have to go to jail, but you've got to do some time, you've got to do community service, okay? Kind of like that. That's kind of my idea. Well, then what do I do? Because I don't go to confession, but how do I do penance? And, and so I carry this load of guilt, but I don't have anywhere to go with it. 
And I remember, I remember as a little kid, I remember in elementary school, on the kickball field, out in center field, worried about my sin and my guilt. And just in case, I would, in the middle of a kickball game, be praying, dear Jesus, please forgive my sin. And I, and I had to make it a quick prayer because if I kept my eyes closed too much, they might kick the ball at me and then I'd really be in trouble, you know? I mean, that's the guilt. But that's not what God demands. He doesn't demand penance. He doesn't just tolerate or excuse. What he does is he forgives. And forgiveness is an act of grace. David goes on, he says, against you, only you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now that seems a little bit strange because what about Uriah? You kind of did some wrong to him too, you know? I mean, he's not here to talk about it, but, you know, and, and actually you really kind of harmed Bathsheba too. I mean, you just kind of made a mess of the whole thing. You offended and hurt all kinds of people. How can you say against you, Lord, only you do I sin? Because we hurt other people. We wrong other people. We harm other people. But sin, sin is against God. Because sin is the violation of His law. Sin is ignoring and rejecting His instruction. Sin is rebellion against His authority. His, sin is, is rejecting His ways for my own. Sin is falling short of God's standards. It's trampling on his love. Sin is against God. Yes, I harm and hurt and do wrong to other people. And yes, I need to ask their forgiveness as well for what I have done to them. But sin has got to be brought to God because only God can forgive sin. And we need forgiveness from other people. But first we need forgiveness from God. And only God can forgive. And that's why he goes on. And he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Now, David didn't have the benefit that we do now, thousands of years later, because he still lived with a little bit of that, am I forgiven or am I not? But see, here's the thing. 2,000 years ago, God became a man named Jesus Christ. And he lived a totally sinless life, the only one who ever did that on this earth. And he, he paid a price for our sin. Only he did that. See, here is the thing that makes Christianity different from any other religion in the world. Because every religion has its moral code. Every religion has um, certain ethical standards. Every religion has certain teachings and certain teachers and places of worship and gatherings. Every religion has all those things. What no other religion has that only Christianity offers is we have a Savior. We have a redeemer. Because the problem is not, I just need to know more about God. The problem is not, I just need to build up a little more willpower. The problem is not, well, I just need to have a higher ethical and moral standard for myself. That is not the solution. The solution is, I need a rescuer. I need a savior. I am stuck in my sin, and it's not just what I do, it's who I am. And I need someone to rescue me. And what Scripture tells us is that's exactly why Jesus came. So that we could be rescued, redeemed, and restored. And that's why 1 John 1.9 can write this. We conf- if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And not only that, 
purify us from all unrighteousness. Not only will he forgive our behavior, he will actually change our nature. And now I live a new way. And the new way that I live now is I live in the power of grace. It begins with grace and it ends with grace. It is grace from God that provides me the forgiveness of my action, but it is also the grace of God that allows me to live a different life. That I now live in the power of his grace. It begins and it ends with grace. I don't have to live with that sin nature anymore. I don't have to keep giving into that stuff over and over again. And I know a lot of you are saying, well, then why do I do it? Because I don't want to. I know better. I feel regretful and remorseful every time I mess up. I keep doing it. Why do I keep doing it? If God has come to set me free from that nature, why do I still struggle with this sin? Because I need that sin nature fully transformed. And that is what David prays for. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Change me, God. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Lord, don't just forgive me, change me. And what David longed for so many thousands of years ago, Christ brought to a reality for you and for me that we can live a different way. Because now we are told if you put your faith in Christ, the spirit of Christ indwells you that you are a new creation. In fact, that's what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Circle that. It has come, not will come, not might come. It has come. You are a new creation in Christ. You don't have to keep doing the same stuff over and over and over again and going through this cycle of trying really hard not to but failing and then feeling miserable and guilty and asking forgiveness only to try harder next time and fail and have to go back and ask forgiveness only to try really hard next time and fail and that cycle that never ends he says there's a new cycle there is a new way to live and it's not going to be in your own strength it's going to be in Christ because he came not just to forgive He came to restore. He takes me with all of my faults, with all of my sin, and he gives me a new life. See, because of Christ, there is a new me. There is a better me. And when I live in grace, I learn to live in the power of grace. Lewis Smeeds put it this way, with our struggles and our ups and downs. He says, grace-based people live lightly with their imperfections because they see their imperfections as reason to be grateful and are thankful to be limited creatures with unlimited potential. We trust that the gap between our actual self and our Christ self will never be cause for rejection. The Christ self we own as our true self is the self we can become. Because I am a new creation, I can live a new way. Let me try to explain that. If I have absolutely no money left in my bank account, I live a certain way. I live accordingly. There are things I don't buy. There are things I can't spend on because I don't have money. Okay? As long as my bank account is empty, I will live a very sparse lifestyle. 
But if some stranger, for some reason, deposited $500 in my bank account, I would live a different way. And if some wonderfully magnanimous person decided to put a million dollars in my bank account, I would live an entirely different way. I would live with the new reality. And what he is saying is, you are a new creation. There is a new reality about you. And you can choose differently. You can live differently. And the key to it all is in Christ. I am in Him, and His Spirit dwells in me. And I am a new creation because of it. Paul wrote about it to the Roman church. In fact, he took a whole long chapter in chapter 7 to explain this whole idea of why do I do what I don't want to do and don't do what I do want to do and all this whole thing. When he comes to chapter 8, he says, here's the deal. He says, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life, set me free from the law of sin and death. There are two laws at work. And they are both at work at the same time. And that sounds really, really strange. Let me see if I can explain that a little bit. There is a law of gravity. Every one of us in this room are subject to the law of gravity. You trip, you fall down. You jump off a high building, you land hard, okay? There's no getting away with it. The law of gravity is the law of gravity, and everybody has to live with that law of gravity. But there is another law. There is a law called the law of aerodynamics. Don't ask me to explain it because I don't know. All I know is, because of the law of aerodynamics, if you get into a plane and you get going fast enough with the right amount of lift, the law of aerodynamics will overcome the law of gravity and you will fly above the ground. Two laws, both at the same time, are in action. But the law of aerodynamics overcomes the law of gravity. But you got to stay in the plane. That's the catch. And so what he's saying is, when we are in Christ, that there is a law that takes over that is different than the old law of sin and death. There is a new law and I live in that new law, but i got to stay in that plane. I have to stay in Christ. But in Christ, I now have the power to choose differently. I don't have to give in to the law of sin and death over and over and over again. And anybody in recovery can explain this much better than I can. Ed shared with us last week his story, how he got to the point where that old law was pulling him down so much, and he realized, I can't do this on my own. I have to give up and let go and let God do something in my life. But every day he still has to make a decision. Even after how many days sober now? He says it's still every day, every day. But here's the thing. Every day you make the right decision, the less and less the pull of the alcoholism is there. And every day that you make the right decision, with whatever that thing is that, that plagues your life, every day you choose differently, every moment that you choose the higher law, the law of grace, the law of God's forgiveness and restoration, every time you make that choice, the new life becomes more and more a reality. The new you becomes more and more a reality. And what David longed for and couldn't see fully 
so many thousands of years ago, Christ has now come to make a reality that you can know for sure because, and we're going to share it together this morning in communion, because Christ did something about our problem, what we couldn't do for ourselves. And now there is this new life, but the new life is in Christ. The Christ self we own as our true self is the self we can become. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California. Oh,